Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The man and up from Kent, and out of Essex too, and not but the Thames divides us and unites us on. We're listening to a song by the English folk group Fairport Convention called Wat Tyler. It's named after the most famous leader of the English Peasants' Revolt in 1381. For centuries after its defeat, the revolt only appeared in the historical record through bitterly hostile sources. Medieval chroniclers like Frossar presented it as a terrifying eruption of savagery from the lower classes. The rise of modern social movements, organising workers and farmers, encouraged historians to take a fresh look at this early challenge to aristocratic power. today is Dominic Alexander. He's an historian and the author of Saints and Animals in the Middle Ages. In the second half of this interview, we're going to discuss what happened in the late 14th century. But we're going to start much earlier, in the 12th century, with a revolt in London led by a man called William Longbeard. While Longbeard was defeated, he has a strong claim to be recognised as England's first social revolutionary. What kind of a city was London in the 12th century and what status did it enjoy in the English kingdom of that time? Right. Well, it was certainly the um, leading town in the kingdom, the largest by uh, some way. It was the centre for national trade as well as international trade. As early as the 8th century, the first English chronicler Bede calls it an emporium for many nations. And certainly it was that in the 12th century. What it wasn't, however, was a capital city in in our modern sense. The government accompanied the king, who the royal household was itinerant at this time, so it wasn't based in one particular place. But uh, London was nevertheless at the centre of the most populous corner of the kingdom, so there was a concentration of artisans of all kinds there. But there was also a concern from kings always to keep London under control. Indeed, the Tower of London, which was built by William the Conqueror, was there precisely to dominate and control the city. And also the other important royal centre was Westminster, to the west of um, of the actual city. That's an important royal centre, but was also there as another point of control over, over London. So like many other towns and cities at this point in in Europe, the citizens and population wanted autonomy from royal or princely rule. So this movement to create communes, which began in Italy in the uh, 11th century and spread to France, London in in, uh, agitating for a commune, that is rights of self-government and um, autonomy from royal or princely interference. London isn't too far behind in starting to demand that in comparison to European uh, cities and towns. So the first moment that we see this appearing in the records is in 1141, during a kind of civil war known as the Anarchy between King Stephen and the Empress Matilda, so-called Empress because she'd been married to the German Emperor. Matilda was on the point of having fully defeated Stephen and capturing him and about to be crowned at Westminster. But the Londoners rebelled at this point, enabling Stephen to escape and the civil war resumed. But in return, the Londoners were granted 
the status of a commune. Specifically, this at this point, it seems to have meant the right to choose their own sheriff. While the sort of leading wealthy families supplied aldermen for a kind of council. Now, these communal rights that London had seems to possibly have uh, disappeared under Henry II, Matilda's son. And chroniclers are quite hostile to um, the idea of a commune. One calls it a tumult of the people and a terror of the realm. So communes were considered quite subversive of social order. However, leading up to where Longbeard appears on the scene, we still at this point don't have much evidence of what um, the common people in London think or do, but they must have given popular backing to the city elite in its actions against Matilda, for example. And then even more, in London's next successful attempt to gain rights of self-government comes in 1191. At this point, England's ruled by King Richard I, who spends most of his reign either away on crusade or fighting in France. He's basically an absentee king. And he left the kingdom under the rule of his justiciar, William Longchamp, who was also the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Richard's barons become extremely discontented with Longchamp's rule over them, and Prince John of ill fame leads them in a rebellion against the justiciar, and they're able to win and depose William Longchamp basically because of, again, the support of London. Londoners open the gates to the baron's army and hold a massive meeting at Smithfield to the east of the city where Prince John and the barons declare William Longchamp deposed. Again, in return for for this aid, to which the common people of London must have uh, contributed very significantly, London is once again granted the rights of self-government and for the first time the right to elect its own mayor. So again, London is not yet a capital city, but it clearly has enormous weight in both the politics and economics of the kingdom. In a more short-range perspective, what was the social and political context in which the revolt that was led by William Longbeard took shape and took place? Okay, so we have very little evidence about what's going on internally in London, socially speaking. But from comparison with what happens in on the continent, there must have been quite a lot of points of conflict between the wealthy elite that runs the city and the artisans and the poor. So that would have been bubbling underneath all these events. But for running up to William Longbeard's rebellion, a massive strain was put upon the entire kingdom by the captivity of Richard I, who was taken on his way back from the Third Crusade by the Archduke of Austria, who handed him over to the German emperor, who kept him captive and demanded a colossal ransom of 150,000 silver marks, which is a really gargantuan sum for the time. So this, however, uh, is an indication of the relative wealth of the English kingdom at this point, that uh, this sum was gathered in 1193. And the emperor, this is Henry VI of Germany, released Richard in 1194. So this is the context for Longbeard's revolt because he accuses the wealthy of the city of passing the burden of London's share of the ransom unfairly onto the poor and away from the city elite. And the chroniclers all tacitly agree that he was right in this, that it was the um, insolence of the rich and powerful, for example, in one chronicler's words, or Longbeard's own zeal for justice and equity that drove him. So there was evidently a major issue of the oppression of the city of elite of the common people of London. And that is the common people are clearly Longbeard's base. How much do we know about Longbeard himself? A relatively surprising amount, actually, because he, he does appear in various terse royal sort of accounting records. So we know that his father was a leading London citizen, for example. And we have record of, of Longbeard in some kind of property dispute 
with someone else about whom we know nothing. But he's, you know, he's there a few times. That corroborates what the chroniclers say about his origins and elite family. But perhaps the most interesting other appearance of Longbeard in the records is from another chronicler, because Longbeard does actually take part in the Third Crusade in an expedition which reaches Portugal and helps the king of Portugal conquer a port which was still under Muslim rule. Now, on the way back from this expedition, Longbeard's uh, ship was caught in a storm and everyone fears for their lives. So Longbeard and a man known as Geoffrey the Goldsmith, which uh, interestingly points to Longbeard's association with at least the sort of wealthier end of the artisan section of London's population. They gather people together and to pray for deliverance. And according to this story, St. Thomas Becket and two other popular saints appear and lead the ship out of the storm. This, by the way, is, is quite a common type of, of miracle story you get in the Chronicles at the time. It would be quite a frequent occurrence for ships to be caught in storms and to be put in danger. And naturally, everyone would pray. So it's quite a plausible, real event as a story. But it's also important because it may, this may well be a sort of conversion moment for Longbeard, particularly in, in association with having gone on crusade. This is a sort of sense that perhaps he has a, a religious vocation. And here he's you know, leading people in a kind of spiritual event. So, you know, obviously we don't know that he sort of immediately embarked on a, a trajectory as a holy man from this point, but it's certainly indicative of his later status as a holy man. But he's back in London in 1190. So crucially, he's around during the time the king's ransom is being gathered. And he is appointed, he gains an appointment as, as a magistrate of some kind, although we're not uh, clear on the specific details. At this point, he may also have been acting as an agent of the king because there's a peculiar uh, sort of quarrel with his brother that also turns up in the records. The chroniclers use this incident to cast all sorts of opprobrium over Longbeard, saying that he, as an ungrateful younger brother, he pursued his, his elder brother, even on to death, it is said, although it's clear that nothing that actually happens to his elder brother in this. But um, there's a record in World Judicial Documents that uh, records how he accused his brother of conspiring with others against the king and his chancellor, precisely on the issue of the, the burden of raising funds for the king's ransom. So this incident, um, we don't know how it ended. The royal record is sort of records its its beginning, but doesn't give us a notion of how it closed. But the bad feeling between Longbeard and his elder brother might well be because William may have mortgaged his house to his brother to provide himself with funds for the crusade expedition. And it seems likely that his brother then refused to hand his house back over to his younger brother. So it may be that that's the cause of the quarrel. As I said, the chroniclers use this to cast aspersions on William's character, but it's notable that, um, in fact, there's, there's positive evidence that uh, William Longbeard didn't suffer any actual repercussions from this incident, in that he gains an appointment as a magistrate after that. And also, as later on in the story, another kinsman of his appears as a champion of his cause. So even within Longbeard's family, the rights and wrongs of this episode may not have been clearly sort of black and white on one side or the other. So that provides a certain kind of context for Longbeard to have been clearly a member of, of the city elite, but perhaps in already a kind of conflictual relationship with that elite and having a kind of outsider status as someone who'd been on crusade and perhaps experienced some form of religious conversion. How did the events of the revolt itself unfold and what were its outcomes? Well, Longbeard, with the chroniclers tell us, uh, started crying out against the oppression of the wealthy and the powerful in the London elite against the poor of London. Now, he does this through convoking assemblies of the people, 
and binding many to him by oath at these meetings. Now, William Newberg claims that 52,000 people swore an oath for Longbeard, but this is an extraordinary number because it's at least twice, if not possibly even three times the size of the entire London population at the time. So it's just an indication that um, we can't take that number seriously, but that you know, very large numbers of the common people must have rallied to Longbeard's uh, side. So clearly, in a sense, Longbeard was stepping into a role which was kind of almost waiting for him in that there must have been enormous anger at the city elite ready to be tapped. And the, the other thing to realize is that these um, assemblies of the people that Longbeard raises, I mean, the chroniclers present them as necessarily illegitimate in nature, but they may well not have been. There were various forms of popular assembly that um, have a place in, in London that we get sort of hints about in, in the records. So we, we can't say anything very specific about them, about their nature, but they might well have been uh, legitimate or at least seen as legitimate by Longbeard and, and the common people at that point. So it's clear that this effective kind of organization that uh, Longbeard heads paralyzes the city government completely. And we might even talk of a situation of dual power existing in London for a time in 1194. This wouldn't actually be unprecedented in terms of the history of uh, towns and cities in uh, medieval Europe. There's other points in other cities where the popular classes are able to effectively take control of things for brief times, most famously in Milan in the 11th century, where a sort of veritable class war happens. But there's other places in France as well where this kind of thing happens. So it's not a kind of an anachronistic or unlikely thing to have happened in a sizable medieval town. The seriousness of the situation is underlined by the involvement of the justiciar of, of England, that is, uh, again, the king's uh, deputy running the, the kingdom in his absence, because Richard I is already over fighting in, in France at this point, so soon after getting back from captivity. The justiciar is Hubert Walter, who's also the Archbishop of Canterbury. So this is, involves you know, the religious authorities as well, in, although as a justiciar, uh, Hubert Walter is... Um, is technically a kind of secular official. But that affects how events play out. So Hubert Walter intervenes by, first of all, he arrests so-called merchants of the people at Stamford, which is an important market well north of, of London. Merchants of the people would mean the merchants who weren't part of, of the elite and would perhaps therefore not uh, have the same kind of trading privileges as the richest level of merchants. So Hubert Walter having these lesser merchants arrested is clearly you know, siding with uh, the city elite there and trying to repress the wealthier and more prominent people who were backing Longbeard. He also takes hostages from the families of these people, therefore curtailing their ability to actively campaign alongside Longbeard. So in response to this, Longbeard goes overseas to the king to appeal for aid on his side. In this, again, it reflects back on the possibility that he'd been acting as a kind of king's agent beforehand, because he obviously has some means of, of arranging for him to see the king. And he also may be trying to play off the king against the city elite because the rights that um, the city had gained in 1191 in the revolt against William Longchamp were very new and therefore fragile. And as, as we saw that the city may have lost the rights that uh, it had gained in the civil war with Matilda and Stephen under Henry II, these kinds of rights can relatively easily be taken away by subsequent kings. So William Longbeard may have been playing off the two parties and putting, therefore, you know, trying to put pressure on the elite to back down, or maybe the king will take away your privileges. And we, we don't know what the outcome of the meeting with 
King Richard was, but um, one chronicler says he returns as if under the countenance of royal favour. So it couldn't have gone that badly in any case. It does, however, seem that Longbeard, Longbeard's movement radicalizes at this at this point, possibly because he's more dependent upon the poor of the city, having the wealthier members of his party having been sort of neutralized by Hubert Walter taking hostages from their families. Because it's at this point that we get from one chronicle of William of Newburgh this very millenarian revolutionary speech that he gives, and it's worth quoting in full because it's quite startling. He is said to have claimed that I am the savior of the poor. Oh, you poor who have experienced the heaviness of rich man's hands, drink from my wells the waters of the doctrine of salvation, and you may do this joyfully, for the time of your visitation is at hand. For I will divide the waters from the waters. The people are the waters. I will divide the humble and faithful people from the haughty and treacherous people. I will separate the elect from the reprobate as light from darkness. So here he's very clearly identifying the poor with uh, the saved and the rich, the haughty and treacherous with the reprobate, the damned. So this is, this is really millenarian stuff. Now, of course, it comes from a chronicle, so we can't sort of think that this is definitely William Longbeard's own words. But there's reason to think that um, the chronicler wouldn't have uh, made this up out of whole cloth, that this probably does reflect the, the, the tenor of Longbeard's speeches at this point. The only thing that um, is rather unlikely is that he said something like, I am the savior of the poor. I, he, probably, he wouldn't have been casting himself actually as a messiah because that would be heresy. So his speeches were certain, almost certainly millenarian in character and very much a record of kind of, of class war, if you like. At this point, even though uh, Hubert Walter had brought troops into the city, he still evidently not gained control because he wants to arrest Longbeard, but um, it's said that he, he's unable to do so because Longbeard is still surrounded by crowds of the poor. So Walter's uh, men have to sort of bide their time and wait for a moment in which he's not guarded by mass crowds. And an occasion like this does occur, and Longbeard and this small number of followers are ambushed. They fight back. Longbeard apparently seizes an axe from one of his the assailants and is said to have killed two of them. But he and his companions have to flee to the church of St. Mary Le Beau. Now, at this point, Hubert Walter, I uh, remember again, the, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, so the preeminent clergyman of, of the whole kingdom, decides to set the church on fire to drive Longbeard and his supporters out. Now, it's uh, hard not to overemphasize what a shocking event this would be. The, the right of sanctuary in a church really is sacrosanct at this point. You get lots of stories of saints taking supernatural vengeance on anyone who dares to to break sanctuary at this time. So it's something that is taken very seriously and would have shocked just about everybody. Eventually, Hubert Walter, after this, is actually deposed as Arch, the Archbishop of Canterbury by the Pope for various misdeeds as Archbishop uh, involving himself in secular affairs. Uh, it's pretty much inconceivable that this event didn't have something to do with it, even if it wasn't the main complaint against him. However, Longbeard and his supporters are driven out of St. Mary Le Beau, and uh, Longbeard is, is mortally wounded at this point. But then he and his companions are dragged through the city and uh, hanged at Tyburn, which is, becomes the traditional spot for executions later on, but it's on the other than the west side of the city. Now, the reaction to this is that uh, a martyr's cult begins on the spot where Longbeard and his companions were executed. And this is actually a fairly common medieval phenomenon that sanctity is attributed to those who'd been unjustly and violently killed. 
So William of Newburgh, again, our chronicler who says the most about all these events, says that the idiot rabble, therefore, kept constant watch and ward over the spot. And the more honor they paid to the dead man, so much the greater crime did they impute to him by whom he had been put to death. So that, again, is a um, an indication of the, the anger against Hubert Walter for having broken sanctuary and slaughtered. Uh, Longbeard. This is also the point where a kinsman of Longbeard appears, because it seems that this kinsman, who is a priest, was one of the main architects of this cult, which drew people not just from London, but from the surrounding area. So Hubert Walter again steps in to suppress this nascent cult and puts a stop to it. But again, it has resonance with other events elsewhere in Europe, similar points, there's a holy man named Ramirdus in Cambrai in what's now Belgium, who was killed by the elites for demanding church reform. But he had um, followers who called him a martyr several decades later. On another occasion, uh, one Arnold of Brescia, another holy man, becomes a leader of a, of a civic revolt in Rome against the Pope himself and the corruption of of the clergy there. He's executed as well. And precisely to prevent a kind of martyr cult from developing there, as it did with Longbeard, the authorities scatter Arnold's ashes on the Tiber so that you know no one can take his remains as relics. So historians tend to assume that there's no consequences in particular from this revolt, as they do generally. Revolts are generally seen as as ineffective, just suppressed and therefore ineffective. But there's various indications that, to a certain extent, the popular cause won its case, in that in 1199, when Prince John becomes king, what's traditional is that a new king gets to raise a tax from towns. So the John's 1199 assessment of London for this new tax is clearly in the records is graduated in that the rich pay a greater proportion than the poor. So that's what the cause was about in the first place, was the, the rich putting the burden of the tax on the poor back in 1193. So to that extent, the elite is not daring to try and pull that trick a second time. Again, however, in 1206, King John claims that the rich of London are exploiting the poor again and directs that the new levy that he he wants from London is to be raised in an equitable uh, way. So, I mean, John here is not motivated by particular concern from the poor, but he's probably, again, trying to exploit divisions between the rich and the poor. But again, it it indicates that the fairness of taxation remains an issue, and it's one that the city elite is vulnerable on. It's also worth noting that famous mid-13th century chronicler Matthew Paris, in writing in the, in the 1250s at a time of conflict between the king and the barons, tells the story of Longbeard and notes that people still regard Longbeard as a martyr and that there are still adherents to his cause. So Longbeard's rebellion must have affected relations between the elite and the commoners of London for some time and it must have been more difficult for the elite to pass the burden of taxation onto the commoners than it had been before. We're now going to move forward to the period leading up to the revolt of 1381. The name of a clergyman called John Ball is linked with the revolt as much as that of Watt Tyler. Five centuries after his death, he was the subject of a famous work by William Morris called a Dream of John Ball. We're now going to hear the English poet Michael Rosen reading the speech that Ball is reported to have given before the most important battle of 1381. Ah, ye good people, the matters goeth not well to pass in England, nor shall do, till everything be in common, and that there be no villains nor gentlemen, but that we may be all united together and that the lords be no greater masters than we be. What have we deserved? Or why should we be kept thus in servage? We be all come from one father and one mother, 
Adam and Eve, whereby can they say or show that they be greater lords than we be? Saving by that they cause us to win and labour for that they dispend, they are clothed in velvet and camlet, furred with grease, and we be vestured with poor cloth. They have their wines, spices and good bread, and we have the drawing out of the chaff and drink water. They dwell in fair houses, and we have the pain and travail, rain and wind in the fields, and by that cometh of our labours, they keep and maintain their estates. We be called their bondmen, and without we do readily them service. We be beaten, and we have no sovereign to whom we may complain, nor that will hear us nor do us right. Let us go to the king, he is young, and show him what servage we be in, and show him how we will have it otherwise, or else we will provide us of some remedy. And if we go together, all manner of people that be now in any bondage will follow us to the intent to be made free, and when the king seeth us, we shall have some remedy, either by fairness or otherwise. What had changed in the economic and political structures of medieval England by the late 14th century? And what was the relationship between the king and his barons? Well, to take the sort of political side of things first, Prince John, in leading the barons' revolt against William Longchamp back in 1191, really sort of opened a can of worms for himself because once he becomes king, discontent amongst the barons is directed at him. And this snowballs into another revolt, precipitated in part by King John's rather startlingly cruel behavior in certain respects. But this culminates in a baron's victory in 1215, where King John is forced to grant what's known as Magna Carta, the Great Charter. Now, originally, Magna Carta was intended simply to give rights to noblemen, to the great lords. In other words, that they be tried only by a jury of their peers, that the king couldn't arrest and imprison them without some cause. He couldn't arbitrarily round up people he disliked and throw them in jail. But from quite early on, London also gains confirmed rights from Magna Carta. And it's clear that um, although, again, it was in the rights of Magna Carta were intended solely for the noble elite, the conflict between the king and the barons, which carries on throughout the 13th century and entails numerous reissues and revisions of Magna Carta, in this unstable situation, the common people, particularly of towns and and of London, uh, use the opportunity to push for the rights of Magna Carta to be considered more widely and to be sort of generalized. And certainly at various points, other towns gain their own charters of liberty and and self-government. And London's system of mayors and so on is quite firmly established. So London doesn't lose any of its privileges after this point. That becomes firmly established and too well established for any monarch to consider repealing them. But in the struggle between the king and the barons, both sides do clearly reach out for popular support, since they're quite evenly balanced, it seems. The term commonwealth begins to be used in political discourse, which, again, that includes, therefore, the the common people. So you're beginning to to have a sort of sense of a national politics, not just uh, personal feuds and disputes between members of the aristocracy. This reaches a height in in the early 1260s, where Simon de Montfort becomes the leader of the Barons Party. And again, uh, London is discontented with King Henry III uh, at this point, partly because Henry III does try to keep interfering in London's government, and also establishes trade fairs at Westminster, which hurts London's own trade. So London is alienated from the king and gives opens the gates to Montfort and his party, and that gives the Baron's side a stronghold in the struggle with the king in in the kind of civil war of 1263 to 5. 
so the, the upshot of, of these events, first of all, is, is that common people in general, both in urban areas and, and even in rural areas too, are drawn into at least the kind of discourse of politics and to, into a sense that uh, they can possibly have weight in national politics. It also, uh, the institute, the really important institutional change that takes place is that parliament begins to take shape. So by the mid-14th century, you've got firmly established the notion of a, that the king has to summon and gain agreement from a parliament of the commons and the lords, for example, for, for taxation and for uh, the general government of the realm. There's also some, some evidence that uh, in the choosing of representatives of the commons, it's not just uh, knights and wealthy landowners below the level of the actual nobility that um, are involved in this, but sometimes the pressure of common people's interest and involvement in, in choosing representatives does have some effect. So again, what you, you do have a, some kind of national political culture of a kind taking shape, and that would affected, have affected how people thought about uh, society and indeed class and, and royal rule and so on. Economically, the population was growing and the economy was growing significantly. So you had you have large numbers of market towns developing, becoming more important. The wool trade is burgeoning. England exports large quantities of wool to the manufacturing cities in, in Flanders. And there's there's a lot of wealth made on the back of that, and there's and it, it's still visible in large numbers of very ornate Gothic uh, churches and that are built uh, even in in quite small small centres across the country. What you also get as um, you, we have more and more survival of royal administrative and judicial records, and this gives us a lot more view of the struggles of artisans against city elites across the country. And throughout the 13th century and 14th century, there's quite notable artisanal struggles and you know class conflicts happening. London in particular grew ever larger, and the counties around it are more and more drawn into its orbit as, as a major market. It's becoming rather more like what we would see as a as a capital city at this point with you know aristocratic palaces being built on on the Thames most famously John of Gaunt's Savoy Palace which was to be destroyed by the peasants revolt in 1381 the archbishop of canterbury uh, rather than resident in canterbury anymore now has lambeth palace on the south side of the Thames and so on. So it, London looks more like a, a center of administration than it had done in the 12th century. It's also important, of course, that serfdom, the holding of peasants in, in servile bondage, owing feudal dues, such as renders of, of foodstuffs and labor dues, lords' domain lands, for example. This had been imposed over most of the peasantry in the course of the 12th century. So the 12th century is a, is a bad time for peasants in that many are losing the freedom which they had previously and are becoming enserfed. And this remains the case throughout the 13th century. So peasants are, are subject to manorial courts as well. That's, that's say, uh, private courts of their lords, which can fine them for all sorts of infractions but also peasants' villagers often have to serve on these courts, which is something that they, they would have resented, but also notably does give many peasant householders actually some experience in local administration. I mean, throughout medieval sources, you get a very sort of hostile and patronizing attitude towards the peasants and the common people. You know, they are called idiotes, imbeciles, and so on. And too often historians kind of follow that and forget just how capable of sophisticated thinking and indeed uh, even administration peasants could be. The peasants were continually attempting to use the law to gain rights that they feel that they should have. 
they don't seem to have succeeded in this very often. I mean, the courts almost invariably side with the lords, but the interesting thing is how often the peasants clearly try to do this. There is one example of peasants actually correctly claiming that their village had once been held in royal domain, so shouldn't have been subject to feudal exactions from their lord. So it wasn't impossible for the peasants to win win their case, but it's generally quite unlikely. There's other interesting cases, however. One that stands out is in 1326-7, there's uh, upheaval in in St. Albans, which is to the north of London, in which the people of the town, which had grown up around the monastery, the abbey there, claimed that they should have rights and the abbey was was wrong to deny them rights on the basis of a charter from King Henry I from the early 12th century, which they were sure existed. They also claimed that um, they had been granted liberties by the 8th century King Offa of Mercia. We have no idea whether that was true or not. I mean, it's not in- totally inconceivable that they were right. And there's evidence that, that peasants actually held uh, all sorts of traditions of customary rights in long memory. And uh, we do have that example where they were, in one case, actually correct in this. But they don't win the case in St. Albans 1326-7. But it's interesting, of course, that then St. Albans rises in 1381 during the Peasants' Revolt and sends, sends bands to join the rebels in London as well. So just because they uh, the monastery sort of quashed their claims earlier in the 14th century doesn't mean to say they'd forgotten. And it probably is an indication of the resentment that gathers because peasants don't generally win their cases. And it may be this context which builds towards the very kind of revolutionary demands of the rebels of 1381, one of whose demands that there should be no law but the law of Winchester, which sounds a bit peculiar, but what they meant was there should only be local law rather than a sort of royal administration, which they're obviously increasingly seeing as being inimical to their interests. So what they were envisaging with this no law but the law of Winchester would be that England would be governed by autonomous local communities over which there would be a king, but there wouldn't be intermediate levels of lordship and judiciary that were inevitably staffed by lords and landowners who would be hostile to peasant rights. They also envisaged in these demands the abolition of all ecclesiastical lords. So you'd get rid of the whole church hierarchy with only one archbishop up top in, in a kind of parallel to having one lord, the king. So remembering that, that peasants did have administrative experience at the local level, this obviously seemed to them to be a viable way forward for sort of freedom from, from lordship serfdom and the oppression of the feudal court system. What impact did the Black Death have on English society in the second half of the 14th century? Yes, well, the the main thing is, I mean, this was an enormous catastrophe, which led to a 40% fall in the population. That's not just for the immediate Black Death itself, or that that was the, the main danger, but there were ensuing famines and recurrences of the plague one of which hit young people in particular, which undermined the population's ability to bounce back. The population doesn't, in fact, recover or start recovering until the 16th century. So, you know, you've you've nearly halved the population of the kingdom. And the, the most important outcome of that is, of course, an enormous shortage of labor. Lords rely on peasant labor or serf labor for farming their domain lands in particular, and so the lords react by sort of doubling down on serfdom to try and ensure that what labor they have doesn't escape elsewhere. And of course, it's very attractive for peasants at this point to move elsewhere because there's such a demand for labor everywhere. The parliament steps in with an intent to sort of help lords with this by imposing in 1351 the statute of laborers, which forbids laborers from or you know artisans and so on, from demanding wages higher than those from before the Black Death and attempting to restrict movement and so on. Now, there's clearly immense resentment against this immediately. And there's an interesting 
case in 1356 in Hertfordshire, where you find a hermit, that's another holy man, and uh, perhaps very slight, you have the kind of William Longbeard type, and a parish priest, both preaching against the statute of laborers, calling it falsely and wickedly made, and even threatening the king's agents who are attempting to enforce the statute. Of course, that comes from a judicial record, so they are um, this little episode is suppressed, but it's a good example of showing how how resented this statute was. And it also is an indication, again, of that there's enormous discontent in the lower ranks of the ecclesiastical hierarchy as well. There's there's almost a kind of ecclesiastical proletariat at this point. There's large numbers of trained clerics with no position and very little support within the church. And so you do get a fair amount of uh, dissenting views and evidence of discontent at that low level of, of the church, and that these people are capable of making common cause with peasants and the poor in general. And this leads us on to the spreading of radical ideas in the run-up to the revolt of 1381. You have quite a number of popular preachers, most famously one called John Ball, who is an important member of the of the revolt and is famous for the phrase, when Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? So preaching a, uh, you know, why do we need the landowning class at all? They weren't there in the beginning. Uh, why should we have them now? So these kinds of ideas are spreading about. And we have the beginning of the Lollard heresy, which looks forward to the Reformation, to Protestantism, and the idea that you should maybe that the Bible should be in uh, the vernacular rather than Latin, and so on. It's a sort of, you know, beginnings of a sort of more democratic approach to religion. So that's beginning to circulate as well. And you have long poems like Langland's Piers Plowman beginning to circulate, which was taken by many commentators after the revolt as having actually had something to do with sparking the revolt and Langland has to distance himself from that uh, quite sharpish but um, again it's an indication of the, the kind of dissenting ideas that are beginning to spread even in sort of literate levels of society. Also important in the run-up to the revolt is the great rumor of 1377. Now this is about there's a kind of confederation of villages of various villages all the way from Sussex on the southeast coast to Dorset in the west, peasant communities who banded together to employ lawyers to create letters patent showing that according to the Doomsday Book, that's that one was created by William the Conqueror in 1087, that according to Doomsday, uh, they w- did not owe any servile dues. So peasants are still trying to use in sort of legal channels to claim freedom from serfdom. But the interest in this is that peasant communities were able to organize a confederation to do this across a you know really quite huge span of the country. And the great rumor that spread, therefore, uh, particularly in the South, was this idea that uh, serfdom was, in, in some sense, actually illegal and illegitimate. And you had peasants actively refusing to carry out work obligations on Lord's domain land. Again, this was uh, suppressed, but you have quite a number of instances of violent unrest in the few years that follow. So how did the revolt of 1381 itself develop? Right. Well, the immediate context, of course, for it is King Richard II's attempt to raise a poll tax to pay for those rewards in France. This was fiercely resented, of course. So the first events that appear to begin with the 30th of May, 1381, and the early days of June, in both Kent uh, and Essex in the southeast, the closest counties to London, you get tax assessors being attacked. Now, in these very early incidents, you have villagers from a large number of fairly disparate villages all appearing in these bands which attack the tax collectors. 
which is in itself an indication that there'd been some prior planning. These were no kind of spontaneous outbreaks of anger, but uh, they had to have some kind of level of planning between them. And as the insurrection uh, snowballs, it becomes it's, it's clearer and clearer when you look at the details that there were, had been extensive coordination and planning going on, at least between peasants in Essex and, and in Kent. You have a series of meetings ha- happening in both counties in which people take oaths to support the aims of the rebellion, which include not just the abolition of the poll tax, but of serfdom and of you know, it's a royal government in general. These initial sets of demands are set out and proclamations made in the villages, people being urged to join the movement, which they do. So these growing bands of people move very quickly to take the key county towns in both shires and also including they take a royal castle. Their movements appear to be synchronized and in doing so they overwhelm the elite's ability to respond to it. Importantly, the rebels free John Ball, the uh, popular preacher mentioned earlier from prison in, in Canterbury. They converge on the county towns and then simultaneously move to London. It only takes them, from the very initial outbreaks, it only takes them two weeks to get to London, which is it's really quite fast moving. They also send out letters from... Um, what Tyler uh, is one of the leaders of the rebels, is the supposed author of one of these letters. These letters do survive, copied down by a later chronicler or a contemporary chronicler, and they are generally accepted as, as genuine and seem to have circulated widely and helped gain support and also helped spread the revolt to other counties. This is also an indication of the, the number of, of literate clerics who are probably involved and sympathizing with, with the revolt, because these are the people who would have copied the letters and been able to read them out. So there's considerable sort of forethought and organization being involved, and also a certain amount of, of military nous. And, you know, and it's also worth, it's worth remembering in this context that quite a few peasants would have actually served in royal armies in the wars in France, so would have actually had, had some military experience. So the rebels converge in two main groups from Kenton and Essex on London. The rebels of Essex meet in Blackheath to the east of the city. The rebels from Kent uh, move into the major suburb south of the city, Southwark. There, both bands have to sort of gain the gates of the city. The account of the Kent rebels in Southwark makes it clear that they had local support they are able to free prisoners in, in the jails. Now, notably that the prisoners in these jails would have been largely in there for debt, for feudal dues owing. So freeing prisoners is quite a political act. It's not just sort of kind of anarchistic. It's a claim that uh, being indebted for owing feudal dues is is not legitimate. So they move in a way that that clearly shows they've got local knowledge and support, which again, one has to think that there needed to have been some prior communication between rebel organizers in the counties and sympathizers amongst the common people in London. So the commoners of Southwark are said to have risen up with the others and cried to the keepers of the bridge uh, across the Thames to gain the city that uh, they would have to lower the bridge and let the rebels enter, or otherwise they would be undone. And for fear of their lives, the keepers let them in let them enter greatly against their will, and despite the fact that the mayor of London was desperately trying to stop this from happening. So the rebel bands are able to take London, where they're able to surround and take the Tower of London, and they execute particularly hated ministers of the king, which includes, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury. They also sack various important buildings and burn the records. Again, they know that uh, the charters held there would show feudal property rights and so on. So they're destroying evidence of, of the Lord's rights against them. But they also show still, at this point, a great deal of discipline. For example, they burn John of Gaunt's palace, the Savoy, but they're clear that um, and they're not sacking it. They're not just 
invading it and taking loot for themselves. In fact, and this comes from a hostile chronicler, so it's quite plausible. They actually throw one attempted looter into the fire of the Savoy, saying, we are not thieves. You know, you're, you're not allowed to plunder this. We're destroying it. So they are in control of the city. And this must have also meant that uh, the common people of London were with them fully on this and helping them dominate the city. But despite this, they're not able to capture the king. And this is the, the, the crucial point. Without gaining control of the king, the king and, and people around him are able to start gathering up uh, their people and hatching a, a plot against the, the rebels. Uh, so this, this all culminates in a meeting at Smithfield at, to the east of the city, where the leader of the peasants, Watt Tyler, is effectively ambushed by the king's men and killed. And King Richard promises to the peasants that he would be their leader now and he would grant them all that they demanded and they're able to disband the peasant armies. So uh, despite the impressive organization to create the revolt and to take, take over London, the peasants aren't quite able to maintain that level of organization and uh, political leadership through the point where they gain London, and and it sort of falls apart from that point. And of course, as the royal administration regains control, and uh, you know, armed men are able to kind of come back into London and and the counties, uh, they regain control, and lots of the rebels are executed. And out of all the trials that come out, is most of our evidence in detail of what what in fact happened. And of course, Richard II also goes back on his his promise to abolish serfdom and uh, and so forth. So there the revolt ends. What were the legacies of the 1381 revolt after it was crushed? The poll tax was abandoned and uh, nothing like it was attempted again. In fact, not until Margaret Thatcher, for whom her poll tax was her undoing as well. So the peasants won that, that particular point. The statute of laborers was also a completely dead letter although it was not formally repealed. So in the face of such a colossal blow to the ruling class's confidence and to the you know the nobility's sense of their ability to control the peasantry, you know, you will have necessarily you're not going to find any records of anyone admitting that they're uh, giving in to the peasants in any way. And of course the ecclesiastical hierarchy and the the court system remain as they are. However, serfdom does decline and die away over the course of the next century. Now, lots of historians want to say, oh, well, that had nothing to do with the revolt. That was for other more sort of mundane economic reasons. But it's really kind of inconceivable that uh, the revolt didn't have an impact on that because lords had to make choices. Do they carry on trying to enforce what they see as their feudal rights over the peasantry as harshly and as constantly as they had before? Or do they find other ways of maintaining their revenues? And of course, what you find is feudal dues being commuted to money rents and so on. So the the landowners uh, effectively taking advantage of the growing kind of money economy that, that you're getting in the late medieval period. And, you know, this is the easier path. If you are afraid of stirring up more peasant resentment and resistance, of which, as we've seen, there was huge amount in the century previous to the revolt, then you will find the easier path. So it's really obtuse not to see the peasants' revolt as being a major factor in the reasons why lords allow serfdom due to decline and and fade away. It's also clear that the Peasants' Revolt provided a kind of model for rebels in subsequent centuries. And this is the first time, this this was, you know, in effect, an attempted social revolution. And so London becomes the clear target for rebels subsequently. So Jack Cade's rebellion in the the 14th century heads to London and, and clearly took some lessons from the Peasants' Revolt in in the way that uh, it proceeded. It was conceivable from this point that you could have 
a commonwealth without bishops or lords, or that that demand had been made, so it's more manageable later. And you do have, you know, these, uh, therefore also these kind of radical phrases like when Adam delved in Eve's span, who then was the gentleman. That's not often quoted in the, in the century or so afterwards, but it does start appearing again thereafter. And it is, of course, well remembered. So in a sense, this is the beginning of a sense that uh, you can attempt to resist and even overthrow the ruling class and does mark a kind of beginning of a revolutionary tradition. Many thanks to Dominic Alexander for that introduction to class struggle in medieval England. You can also read his articles about the subject on the Jacobin website. We're going to finish now with a song that links the revolt of 1381 with the movement against the poll tax imposed by Margaret Thatcher. This is The Jangling Man by the Cleaners from Venus. Which drunk